a lot of people that love to think they live by the Ten Commandments. That that's kind of the, the model, you know, that they adhere to. Well, we're going to look more at the Ten Commandments. We're going to see the importance of them. We're going to see the, the application and the relevance of them for us today. But it's important as we see the context here, God drawing, leading Israel out of Egypt. He's been taking them through the wilderness and he brings them now, as we saw in chapter 19. Yeah, sorry, I don't want to call anybody Siri. Hang up, will you? Come on. All right. <laughs> Siri's jumping onto the mic. There I go. What is that going on here? Okay. They're watching. Okay. Um, so God brings Israel now to Mount Sinai, to the base of Mount Sinai, where it's again, this is the place that God comes and really reveals himself, but reveals his heart and his law to them. A nation must have a constitution and law to govern it. That's important. The only law ever revealed from heaven was received by Israel at Mount Sinai. Now, the, the rabbis counted 613 specific injunctions in the law, 248 positive commands and 365 prohibitions. The scriptures indicate at least six reasons for the revelation of this law. The law, first of all, revealed God's glory and holiness. Secondly, it manifested the sinfulness of man. Thirdly, it marked Israel as God's chosen people. Fourthly, it gave Israel a godly standard by which they might continue to inhabit Canaan. Fifthly, prepared Israel for the coming of the promised seed, that's Jesus Christ. And number six, it illustrated in various forms and ceremonies the person and work of Christ. So in the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, they came to the desert of Sinai. Like I said, they encamped in front of the mountain to await now the word from God. And, and this is significant. The date's given in chapter 19, verse 1. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. So this is important. God's, God's kind of putting a timestamp on that to show the relevant significance of what is now to come and to follow. We see that here in chapter 20. Look at what we read in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Let me stop right there. So what does God do before? He delivers the law before. He begins to break down his heart and his desire for the nation of Israel, how they're to live, how they're to act. What does he do? He says, I want you to understand who I am. He declares, first of all, who he is and what he's done for the nation of Israel. And that's such an important aspect, I believe, for us to understand. God didn't give the law to Israel while they were in Egypt and declare that, listen, I'll deliver you out of Egypt if you keep my law. He didn't do that. He said, I'm gonna bring you out of Egypt and then I'm gonna declare my law to you. God says, first of all, I want you to know who I am and what I've done for you. He wants their living for the law or living for God and obeying the law to be based on what God has already done for them, not what he will do if they do these things. It's all revealing that heart of love and grace of God. And that's very intentional and important because the people of Israel need to recognize that they were stuck in bondage in Egypt. We too need to recognize we were stuck in sin in slavery to sin, we were in bondage due to the course of this world and our own sin, but God has brought us out of bondage and has given us new life. He alone deserves our allegiance and our affection. He has every right now to claim legal authority over Israel and over us simply because of who he is and what he's already done for us. Amen? God deserves that. He spared us from sin, he's redeemed us, he's brought us into right standing with God. There's no, nothing that we need God to further do to have us live more obediently to him. That, that at least should not be the case. He's already done everything he needs to for us to live wholeheartedly in devotion to him. So it says, I am the Lord, your God. And I like that, notice he makes this personal. I'm the Lord, your God. Not the God of Moses, not the God of Abraham, but says, I'm the Lord, your God. God wants to be in a personal relationship with his people. See, if a person is not worshiping the one true God, then the law is gonna be very heavy and unappealing. 
But when a person begins to see the heart of God and they experience his love and his grace that he's already demonstrated to them, the law suddenly reflects just that nature and that quality of God. But without a relationship with God, it all becomes very empty and dead. So looking at these 10 commandments now, now first of all, these are often referred to as the, the Decalogue, meaning the 10 words. That's kind of what is seen here from this first verse that God spoke all these words. We also see in Exodus chapter 34, verse 28. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights speaking to Moses on Sinai. And he neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote, God wrote all on the tablets, the words of the covenant, the 10 commandments. So it's kind of where we get this, this word Decalogue, the, the 10 words from here. And we also need to recognize that there are more than 10 commandments, as I mentioned earlier, right? 600, the, the, the 10 commandments began to be like amplified and applied throughout the law and broken down into various applications to where they, the Jews came up with a 613 commandments. Again, 248 positive injunctions and 365 negative ones. So it's like one, thou shalt not, you know, for every day of the year, right? Every day you are living with a new, don't do this. I mean, imagine that, 365 total of these things here. But these 10 now encapsulate for us and summarize God's rule for our conduct towards him and others. You can summarize them as rules of one religion, secondly, worship, reverence, time, authority, life, purity, property, tongue, and contentment. That sums up the Ten Commandments, at least the, the categories of them here. Now, we also see these commandments divided between our, our relationship to God and then our relationship to our, our fellow man, to others, right? There's a, a vertical focus in the first four commandments that all pertain to our relationship with God, but then the next six commandments all are on the horizontal level and they pertain to our relationships with one another. The first four, again, directed to God. The next six, directed to one another. So we'll see that as we go along. And that's why it's interesting because when Jesus was asked and confronted, what's the greatest of the commandments, right? What does he say? Matthew 22, verse 37 to 40, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the first and great commandment. And the second is like, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So God himself says, listen, it's all wrapped up in your love towards God and your love to one another. And that's the, the two kind of breakdown categories we see primarily in the 10 commandments. And so again, it summarized the very heart of the law. Because when you're loving God, you're gonna honor him and be devoted to him. You're not gonna worship other gods. When you are loving others, you're not going to do anything to harm them or affect them negatively. When love is reigning supreme and love is the priority, you're going to naturally be fulfilling these things that we're gonna be looking at here. So let's get it at first commandment. Verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, we can tend to reason that this isn't really a big issue for us in, in our society and culture, but in this day, it, it absolutely was. We've seen how the plagues in Egypt, remember uh, the plagues that God delivered in Egypt were all kind of a direct sort of attack and confrontation of the various gods that they worshiped there in Egypt. There's a direct hit on them to show the supremacy and sovereignty of God. So in Egypt, Israel was surrounded by the worship of many gods. They were surrounded by this polytheistic culture and now they're reminded that following God is a very monotheistic religion and that Yahweh is the one true and only God. And that's why he uses his covenant name here. There in verse two we saw, I'm the Lord your God. That's the name Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the, the all existing one. So God says, I'm the one true God. Interesting, the name God, you know, is not like the name of our God. That's the title. God is simply a title. It's a title for whatever 
has your allegiance and devotion, whatever is that master passion that is governing your life, that's your God. And Yahweh makes clear that there's to be no other master passion driving your life other than him. So I have no other gods before me. So that's the first commandment. The second commandment, do not make any idols. It says in verse four, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Again, this was a very common practice that was evident, especially in Egypt. We don't see these things to the same degree in our culture, but we're certainly seeing the practice of worshiping the creation rather than the creator. In fact, that's what Paul calls out in Romans 1, verse 22 to 25, that he was seeing professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. So all through history, we've seen this kind of leaning towards worshiping creation rather than the creator, carving out, making idols that we can kind of identify with. And, and I mean, we see that kind of, of worship to some degree just within the planet and things like climate change today. And I know there's a much more sinister plot behind it all, but embedded within it is that worship of creation rather than a worship of God. I mean, perhaps if we held to the laws of God all along, we wouldn't be feeling the panic and fear many have over these things today. We kind of put it backwards, but. And some people, we can look at, again, idolatry as, again, I don't have any kind of like statue or carved out image that I've made. Idolatry is, is far from me, but you know, again, any attempt to express the image of God beyond physical limitations demeans him and restricts our worship of him instead of enhancing it. Some people will make an image of God in the sense of they, they will view God in the way that they want to see God. And it oftentimes contradicts the word of God. There'll be those that'll say, listen, my God is a loving God who doesn't condemn and he accepts all people. There'll be so-called Christians that will identify God that way. Well, you know what? You've made an image, you've made an idol, you've made God in the form that you want him to be rather than what the word of God says. And again, it's making an idol. You've robbed him of his sovereignty and you put yourself in the position of creator, making God who you want him to be. We have to follow what the word of God says. And there are many that go beyond that and try to describe God and, and will only worship a God that fits into what they want him to be. And notice here, it says in verse um, five, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Interesting, isn't it? How could, how could God describe himself as a jealous God? We, we think of that in, in the terms that we think of jealousy and we go, man, that just seems to be so contradictory to the very nature of God. How can God be a jealous God? Well, listen, God's jealousy is love in action because he refuses to share the human heart with any rival, not because he is selfish and wants us all for himself, but because he knows that upon that loyalty, loyalty to him depends our very moral life. Understand, God's not jealous of us, he is jealous for us, and he wants our best, and he knows that our best comes in line when we begin to devote ourselves to him and worship him alone. 
and have no other gods before him. He's jealous for us, desiring the best for us. It's his love that is in action. It's like if my wife was to go, you know, ride off with the hell's angels, right? I'm not gonna be like, oh, I'm jealous. Oh, she's with them now. Now I'm so jealous. I'll be jealous in the sense that I know that's not gonna be helpful or healthy for her. I'm jealous for her because I want to see her in a good, healthy relationship, not one like that, you see. Jealous for her rather than jealous of her. And that's how God is towards us. Now, interestingly, verse five goes on to say that God is visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. And there are those that will take a verse like that and claim that there are generational curses that get passed down among families. Maybe you've heard of that term generational curse before. And, and it's where people can kind of blame their sin or their circumstances upon what you know, has happened in their life. And there's somewhere along the line that needs to have something broken or delivered for there to be freedom in that. Can I just say that generational curses is not biblical and that's not what we're dealing with here? What we do see mentioned here is that the sins of the father often get repeated by the children in a very natural way because that's what they see exemplified before them. Doesn't take much for your children to be into mimic and copy you, does it? All of a sudden you're like hearing your children saying, you're like, where'd you get that from? That was from daddy. It's like, what? <laughs> well, I'll have a talk with him later on, right? But doesn't take much to have kids pick up these things and you, you really are surprised sometimes. But this is the thing that if the, the father or the mother for that matter, the parents are living out this opposition or rebellion to God, well, do you not think that the children are gonna follow along in that? Most likely, absolutely. And so God continues to bring correction and punishment for those sins. He's not dealing with the sin of the fathers and paying that upon the children. He's dealing with the sins of the children that have been repeated because of what they've seen in other generations. But notice those who love God and obey him experience the blessed mercy and love of God. Judgment, it says, may reach to the third and fourth generation, but mercy goes to thousands. It does not run out. The mercies of God is new every morning. Praise the Lord for that. So don't buy into generational curses. Don't buy into, I'm this way because of that. Something needs to be broken. Sin just needs to be repented of, plain and simple. We just need to give ourselves over to the Lord and he forgives, delivers, and redeems us. It's as simple as that. So look at verse seven here. We look at the third commandment, which is don't take the Lord's name in vain. It says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now a name, especially in this day, stood for one's character. Okay, a name really represented uh, the person. It kind of, you know, was to embody their essence. So this command is not just about misspeaking the name Yahweh or Lord in vain. It was rather to misrepresent God essentially. Some Christians can say they never speak God's name in vain. They never use God's name as a curse word. But do they uphold the honor and value of God in how they live? Are they representing the Lord in word and in deed? Because that's very much tied to not taking the name of the Lord in vain. We can all say, oh, I don't say, you know, OMG. I don't say this. But do we carry that out to the extent of saying, man, I, I represent the Lord. I'm not standing here as a Christian saying I follow Christ, but then go and do all this other stuff that's very much in opposition to Christ because that would then be taking the Lord's name in vain. You're not... You're not bearing the name of the Lord and representing him properly. So representing the Lord, not taking his name in vain. Now, in this time, it certainly was oftentimes connected to not just representing him, but 
making an oath or a vow. And oftentimes people would use the name of the Lord to say in a vow or a promise. And God says, man, don't, don't do that. Don't use my name to where you might break that promise and then basically show the name of God to be something you don't really revere or hold up. Leviticus 19 verse 12 says, and you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. So don't use his name in, in those ways where you might dishonor it. Fourth commandment, keeping the Sabbath, verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So the very word Sabbath speaks of rest, okay? This is tied into the name. Sabbath means rest. It was modeled for us right from creation where God worked for six days and then rested the seventh day. And see, God has intended a day of the week to be a day of resting and recuperating for us. It's a time to break from your regular labors and just be refreshed in the Lord. This is a good and healthy thing to do. Now, the, the Jews began to religiously look to keep the Sabbath, uh, which was a Saturday for them, as a day for no work. But they began to draw all these crazy conclusions over what constituted work. What do we mean by you shall do no work? Can you do this? Can you do that? And they began to make all these different restrictions and stipulations as to what constituted work so that the Sabbath began to become more of a, a burden than it did a blessing. They began to fear like, and they put, you know, like limits of how far you could go from your home. What kinds of things you were able to do. And, and it began to be this thing where I'm like, are, are, am I breaking the Sabbath? If I go this direction and go this many steps, am I breaking the Sabbath? What's the limit here? Like it began to be a real burden and a source of confusion. In fact, even back in 1992, tenants let three apartments in an Orthodox neighborhood in Israel burn to the ground while they asked a rabbi whether a telephone call to the fire department on the Sabbath would violate Jewish law. Observant Jews are forbidden to use the phone on the Sabbath because doing so would break an electrical current, which is considered a form of work. In the half hour that it took the rabbi to decide, yeah, it'd be okay, the fire spread to two neighboring apartments. That's just the futility sometimes of adding, you know, all these rules and burdens to the law. You know, Jesus came along and he said, listen, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, we're not made to try to fit into some kind of restrictive way of keeping the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man so that they could enjoy a time of just simply rest and refreshing and recuperating from a, a, a time of work. Paul would say in Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So we need to keep in mind that the Sabbath was not made for the church, given to the church. It was a covenant between God and Israel. Exodus 31 will spell that out in even more detail. We're no longer obligated to keep a Sabbath. We're not bound or confined to a Sabbath. What the Sabbath intended to do was done in and completed through Jesus Christ. He now becomes our rest. We rest in him, the work is done. Does, does Sunday become our new Sabbath? No. Sunday's simply the Lord's day that we set aside to gather as a congregation in worship of God. We're not fulfilling a Sabbath by coming to church. Warren Wiersbe says that the Sabbath, um, the Sabbath is a reminder of the completion of the old creation, while the Lord's Day is a reminder of our Lord's finished work in the new creation. The Sabbath speaks of rest after work and relates to the law, while the Lord's Day speaks of rest before work and relates to grace. We're so thankful that 
we are under God's grace and not under the law anymore. Now, don't get me wrong, though we may argue over kind of what the Sabbath is to look like for us today, we can't deny the importance of the principle of a Sabbath, where we need to take time to rest. That's something God has built in for us and the necessity of it. So though we're not obligated to uphold in a kind of religious way a Sabbath day, the principle still applies where God says, man, if you don't take time to just come away and be refreshed in me, you're gonna just simply begin to fall apart. It's like having a car. You know, if you just drive that car and you don't do any regular maintenance on it, that car's not gonna last very long, is it? There are certain things that need to be done before it, so it doesn't break down. A Sabbath is God's gift to us and we benefit by taking time to observe one. Whatever day that might look like, however you feel that needs to be applied in your life, taking time to just be with the Lord, to be refreshed in Him and to stop the ongoing kind of labors and just recuperate. So these first four commandments are all again, like I said, dealing with our relationship to God and worship of God. The next six deal with our relationship to fellow men. That's important in the order of this because the vertical relationship must be in order if we're gonna have the horizontal relationships functioning in harmony. This needs to be right first before we can really see these things function the way they need to, right? So we look into the fifth commandment, honoring your father and mother, verse 12 says, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. See, honoring parents promotes a healthy and strong society. Unfortunately, what we see today has been the intentional breakdown of the family unit to where we've seen children growing up not having strong authority figures over them to guide and teach them. And now we see children with just an absolute disrespect towards adult or authority figures in general. And the enemy has gone, I think, uh, you know, really wild in trying to destroy the family unit. And, and we've seen how that is absolutely broken down. Society, civilness uh, among us, and you see what goes on among young people today and just the disrespect and lack of, lack of respect for authority is just absolutely horrendous to, to see and to watch. But notice here, God says, this is that one commandment that <laughs> comes with a promise attached to it. It says, when you honor your father and mother, your days are gonna be long. See, the law also began to spell out that any disobedient or rebellious child could be taken to the elders of the city and they would be stoned. <laughs> Deuteronomy 21. I'm not saying we need to go back to that, but I think if we had a little bit more fear in kids of disciplinary measures, it would go a long way to kind of curb some of the craziness that we see in society. Following God's word literally extended your life here. You obey, you honor your father and mother, you're not gonna be in any danger or threat <laughs> of having to be stoned. Paul would, would quote this uh, in Ephesians 6, verse two and three saying, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. It's a verse I have painted on my kid's bedroom wall. <clears throat> um, sixth commandment, do not murder. Uh, verse 13 simply says you shall not murder, plain and simple. And we see here, here that God puts intrinsic value on human life, right? We're all made after all in the image of God. And so the natural conclusion is that we're to uphold all life and not think that we have the right to bring it to an end. All life is sacred. Now, God did give allowance for capital punishment, but the word here for murder speaks of 
putting to death improperly for selfish reasons rather than with authorization. So God's heart is that we look to the value of life made in the image of God, whether they're a believer or not. And we never should stand in the place where only God has the right to give or take life. Now, interestingly, Jesus took the sixth and the seventh commandment, seventh one being do not commit adultery, and he took it even deeper in the Sermon on the Mount when he said that these are things that we can violate with just our heart. Because a lot of us love to look at the Ten Commandments and go, yeah, man, I'm doing pretty good. I don't, I don't break those things. Haven't committed adultery, haven't murdered anybody. You know, I'm doing pretty good. But Jesus says, well, let's go a little bit deeper than just an outward action. And let's look at what goes on in the heart. Because Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21 to 22, you've heard that it was said of those of old, or to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Jesus begins to lay out that these actions may not be committed in an outward way, but they begin right here in the heart. And they put a person every bit as guilty before God for just having that brewing in your heart than if it was acted out. God desires purity from within. And when we are walking in purity from within, it's gonna take care of what we're seeing happening in an outward way. So the seventh commandment, Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. And this again is another breakdown of the family unit that we talked about earlier. Adultery destroys marriages, it destroys homes. There's nothing good that comes of this. And again, this is something that will begin in the heart. Don't, don't think that it's okay what you do inwardly as long as it's not being acted on outwardly. Because again, God holds us accountable to what's going on in our heart. Matthew chapter uh, 5, verse 27 to 28. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Like I said, God desires us to be walking in purity and holiness. Sexual immorality has been celebrated in our culture long before our time. And we need to be aware of the vices that the enemy loves to use to bring people down. God established this command because there's a propensity for this sort of thing. And we need to recognize the incredible harm that's inflicted when we engage in this kind of activity. How many people have gone into a relationship thinking this is okay, it can be done in secret, nobody has to know, I can just engage in this and move on with my life only to see that, man, that has absolutely brought destruction. Proverbs speaks a lot about these things. Proverbs chapter five deals with a lot, but here in Proverbs two, I was just reading this this morning, it says in Proverbs two, verse 16 and 19, to deliver you from the immoral woman, Solomon's speaking about wisdom, right? And how we need to walk in wisdom. It'll deliver you from the immoral woman from the seductress who flatters with her words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house leads down to death and her paths to the dead. None who go to her return, nor do they regain the paths of life. It robs you of something when you walk in these ways that are contrary to God's ways. Don't think that you can just go ahead and entertain these things and get away with it. It robs you of life and you cannot regain those paths easily. Yes, there's forgiveness, thank the Lord for that. But it has consequences. It destroys lives. And how many people have gone down those paths thinking that they can get away with it only to see that it is absolutely ended in death? Eighth commandment. Verse 15, you shall not steal. Now, for there to be a stable society, people need to have a respect for each other's property, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it's crazy. Um, I don't know how much you've seen in the news. Um, 
I know I'll see like a video probably a couple times a day on, on Twitter where you've seen various places in the, in the States where the laws for you know, um, theft in various places, the, the, the criminal consequences for that have just been lowered so much and, and decreased to where you know, there's no um, criminal liability for people that take things under a certain amount. So people are going into stores now and just randomly in front of everybody, just walking in and just taking all the stuff for themselves and just walking out and nobody can do anything. Store owners are not allowed to stop them or do anything, they just have license to take what they want and this helps nobody, right? This is not a good thing. There's a grandpa who is always going on about the good old days and the lower cost of living in particular. So when I was a kid, my mom could send me to the store and I'd get a salami, two pints of milk, six oranges, two loaves of bread, a magazine, even some new blue jeans, all for a dollar. Then grandpa said sadly, you can't do that anymore. They got those video cameras everywhere. (laughs) Stealing never pays. I refuse to believe that my road worker cousin was stealing from his job, but I went to his house and all the signs were there. So, let's move on, ninth commandment. There's a thief that broke into a local police station, stole all the toilets and urinals, leaving no clues. A spokesperson was quoted as saying, we have nothing to go on. Okay, that's the last one, ninth commandment. Verse 16, ninth commandment, don't bear false witness. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, it says. Now this one is important, not like the others aren't, they're all important, but it's important because this closely relates to God, because God is a God of truth. There's one thing that God cannot do, and that is lie, Titus 1 verse 2. So he wants his people to be people who uphold the truth. That represents God. Last commandment, do not covet. Verse 17 says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. So this word covet means to desire or, or literally to like pant after. It's having an unhealthy want for something that's not yours. And this command now is, is unique in the way that all the others have an outward display of action to them, whereas this is something that originates in and is concealed in the heart, right? Covetousness. This isn't something that's necessarily acted on in an external way, but it's going on in the heart. In fact, this is the one thing and commandment that really caused Paul to stop his tracks and realize he was a sinner. Because remember how much Paul would say, you know, according to law, I was righteous, right? I upheld the law. But then he would say in Romans 7, verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. Suddenly Paul realized, this is the thing that I'm struggling with. I thought I was upholding the law in a very external way, but suddenly I was confronted with the issues of the heart and realized I'm a a covetous man. Paul would later liken covetousness to idolatry in Colossians 3, 5. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Jesus would say in Luke 12, 15, take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. So here's the 10 commandments. God lays out his heart for humanity. Now, these commandments, um, I will talk about that in a second. I wanna move on to verse 18 to 21. Touch on that and then we'll, we'll move on to some other stuff about them here. It says in verse 18, now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. 
Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. Verse 21, so the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. So notice here that the more that the people heard of God and saw of God, the more they had a reverence and holy fear towards him. And that's a good thing. It's the kind of attitude that we should always be carrying out in our, in our life before the Lord. He's an awesome God and we shouldn't take him lightly. We should see how awesome, powerful he is and have a right reverence and fear of God. Now, it says there in verse 19, when, when God spoke to us, he said, you know, they're like, he better speak with you, Moses, because if he speaks to us, we're gonna die, right? That was the kind of conclusion they had. And that's a good thing to see even for ourselves, that when God speaks today, we should truly look to die to ourselves. Take in what he says. So often, we wanna kind of repel and go, no, I don't wanna receive that. I don't wanna have to live that. I don't wanna be accountable to that. I wanna continue on in my way. But as God speaks to us and speaks to us through his word, how much we need to take this in and say, Lord, help me to die to self. Help me to put my own wants and desires down so that I may be more in line with what you desire and what your way is. Dying to self so that we might receive all the more from the Lord and live out what he says. Thankfully, in verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not fear. See, we never have to fear or be afraid of God. We need to fear him reverently, but when we do that, then we never have to be in fear of God. There's a big difference there. Do not fear, don't, don't be afraid. And you don't need to be afraid when you walk in a holy fear and reverence of God, when you walk in obedience to him. This healthy fear of God will notice this, keep you from sin, the end of verse 20. Do not fear for God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin, it says. The healthy fear of God helps keep us from sin. Now, again, before we move on, let's look at now some of the purpose of the law. Purpose of the law, what is the purpose of the law? What, what place does it have for us today? Well, the law was not intended to show us what standard we must achieve to be seen as righteous before God, but it was to show us God's perfect standard and how we in our own strength are unable to live up to that standard. Paul tells us in Galatians 3, verse 23 to 25, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to do what? To bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith, faith in Jesus. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. We're no longer in need of the law. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So the law now becomes fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ. We're no longer bound to adhere to this law, but we're bound now to live by faith in Christ. And Christ fulfills the law. He's the only one that could live up to the law. He completely fulfilled it, and so now we are seen as righteous when we come to Jesus in faith and we put our lives in him. It's not because of us that are made righteous, it's because of what Jesus did. So, like I said earlier, there are a lot of people that like to say, well, I, I live by the Ten Commandments. That's kind of my, my moral code. That's what deems me kind of right with God is what they're implying by saying that. But understand, as we've seen here, none of us can live up to the law. None of us can keep the law. It was there to simply expose our sinfulness and to show us our need for something or rather someone greater. And that's fulfilled in Jesus. He's accomplished it all now. And we need to live by faith in him, 
and in what he's done for us. Now, is the law valid for today? Well, the Bible makes very clear that the believer today, again, is not bound by the law. Romans 6, 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Galatians 5, 18, but if you're led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. Romans 8 says, for the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the spirit but a, or do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So because we're not under law, does that mean that we're all now free to just do what we please? No, instead we live by a higher law. That's the deal. <laughs> yeah, we have liberty in Jesus Christ, but we live now by the law of love. And Jesus himself summed up the law in these two commandments as we read earlier. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and secondly, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, love now fulfills the law. And it's a higher law for us. Romans 13, verse eight to 10 Oh, no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, because love does no harm to neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So we live by a higher law now today. Okay, we're gonna wrap up this chapter, verse 22. Check out what we read here in verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, you have seen that I've talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves an altar, uh, or not make for yourselves, and then an altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, in every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. Now, you might look at this and go, man, this seems to be so kind of out of place. I'll come in and start a new chapter with this. But what I love about this, and this is so wonderful because after giving the law, what do we see now? An altar. And an altar is where sacrifice is made. See, in order for us to be saved, which we've already determined the law cannot do. We cannot be saved by the law. What we do need is a sacrifice because sin brings death. And there needs to be a sacrifice, an atonement. We can only approach God through the shed blood of a sacrifice. And that sacrifice speaks of Jesus Christ who's paid the penalty and the price for our sin. Jesus became that, that burnt offering as it's listed here, this burnt offering that's to be offered on this altar. Jesus became that burnt offering and how he took the fiery judgment of God for our sin upon himself. He bore the wrath of God. And through his death, he brought peace and a right standing now before God. He's reconciled us to the Father. Colossians 1 verse 20 says, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus shed his blood. He became that sacrifice. This altar all points towards what is necessary and needed to atone for our sins because the law couldn't do it. We need an altar. We need sacrifice. And it all points to Jesus. Verse 25, and if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone, for if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. So with this altar, God prescribes that it's not to be fancy or glorious. You're not to use a tool and really, you know, chisel out those stones and make it this really fanciful work of art, which seems almost odd. But God says nothing's to detract from him it's to be simple there's to be no other glory given to any of these objects other than to God and likewise no steps were to be used so that flesh would not be exposed now in in pagan rituals 
as we've seen in the temple at Corinth, right? There were a lot of, you know, sexual forms of worship that were going on, lots of nakedness, and so the Lord says, no, you're not to have stairs, which I don't know how that's gonna do anything anyways. Um, it doesn't cause anything to be exposed to my house when I go upstairs, but, um, but no stairs, there's to be a ramp that goes up so that nothing is exposed. And again, it's just simply a, a good rule for us when ministering for the Lord and before the Lord, leave the flesh out and eliminate any distractions. Do all for him and by him in everything we do. That's what's instructed here regarding the altar. And so we're gonna look at some more laws that kind of get tied in and again amplified now as we go through the next few chapters next time, all right? So worship team, come on up and uh, let me pray. Well, God, we thank you, Lord, for this um, wonderful instrumental chapter. As we look at the commandments of God that reveal, again, your heart, your holiness and perfection. And God, we, we thank you that you've not caused us to have to live by the commandments. They've simply shown us that we're unable to. And you provided something better. You provided one to fulfill all of that in your son, Jesus Christ, who offers to us now life, forgiveness of sin, who's done it all for us. And we thank you that the work is complete. And all we're called to do is to turn from sin and put our faith in Jesus. What a wonderful thing. Thank you, Jesus, that you've reconciled us to the Father through the blood of your cross. And Lord, I pray that we would truly live devoted and wholeheartedly to you. May our allegiance and affection be upon you for all that you have already done for us. The Lord our God who has delivered us from sin and bondage. So we worship you here tonight. Pray in your name, amen.